the Lord. Good to see so many familiar faces and uh, other new faces. Great. I hope you have one of these. I know you're carrying other things, but uh, uh, would you turn to 1 Thessalonians? 1 Thessalonians, the church is in um, a series on 1 Thessalonians, and I've been assigned chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. I didn't say it earlier at this point. I forget all the protocol things that you're supposed to do. I'm supposed to say what an honor and a privilege it is for me to be here. Blah, 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 blah. I do feel like home folks, so pardon me for those of you who don't know me to act so informal. I promise not to change. I don't know about you, but boy, what a crazy week, crazy couple of weeks it has been for the McNutt household. We lost two extended family members this past week, and we've had the um, men's retreat, and uh, I had a bunch of work to do for that, um, and, uh, and I, I, I stay pretty abreast of what's happening out there in the world, and uh, Sandy and I watch Jeopardy, and we've been a little confused at some of the things that have been going on there, and, um, and then I, I heard uh, a response about uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch this week. I don't know whether you saw that in the news. Uh, NBC News reported this week that Justice Neil Gorsuch blasted the city of Fredericksburg, Virginia. I grew up not far from Fredericksburg, so I, I know where it is and what's going on there. It, it, the article goes on to say that he blasted Fredericksburg, Virginia, on Tuesday, saying officials improperly delved into the internal religious practices of a church. So he's saying that the church went someplace they shouldn't have gone. That the church delved into the religious practices of a church after that church requested the, well, legal tax exemption for a newly hired minister. So here are the bullet points. So the Life in Christ PCA Church in Fredericksburg. Now, PCA, that's a well-established denomination. It's not some, you know, strange wing of the Presbyterians. It's uh, one of the conservative branches of uh, and PCA. I've got many friends in the PCA. And the Life in Church hired a new minister, a new minister and his wife for the student ministry. Now, part of the package for that was a house, Obviously, house sitting on property, which the law in Virginia says that churches and the ministers, if the church owns the property, are tax exempt from property uh, taxes. Well, Fredericksburg, the city thereof, didn't like that. And they took it to court and they won. And so on up the appellate court it went until it got to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court refused to hear the case. And when the, you well know, when the Supreme Court refuses to hear a case, then it drops back down to the decision of the lower court, and it stands. Now you say, well, so what? Well, I'll tell you so what. Now the state 
seems to be taking upon itself to decide who is and who is not a minister. And, and I agree with Gorsuch that they are delving into the internal religious practices of a church where they have no business. He didn't say that, I did. The First Amendment does not permit, he goes on to write, bureaucrats or judges to subject religious views to verification. What Gorsuch is saying is it's not up to the court to decide what the church believes and what they don't believe. In his descending uh, court and the court's refusal to hear the case, they, the church, was denied the exemption. Wow. What's at stake there? Well, what's at stake is the state telling the church what they can and cannot do. I know that there are a variety of other kinds of cases going on in, in America today, all over the place. Christian organizations are being told what they can do and what they cannot do, particularly in the lives of minors right now. The churches are being told how they can and cannot counsel minors. Uh, in one response, local news out of Columbia, South Carolina, and reporting of a case in Taylor's, South Carolina, uh, they're seeking a case against this particular church and its pastor who seeks to help young people with their gender identity challenges with, quote, the love and the gospel. A councilwoman in Columbia, Tamika Isaac Davine, would like to ban that practice. The, the councilman would like to stop the ministerial ministry to teens in this area. Quote, the council gave unanimous first approval to an ordinance outlawing professional therapists working with minors from trying to, quote, change an individual's sexual orientation or gender identity, end quote. We are in a crazy world, and some real crazy things are happening. What's at stake? Well, in a moment we're going to read the text here in 1 Thessalonians, but what's at stake here is that they are, they, the state, are hindering us from speaking. Do you have your Bible? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let me get there. Here we are. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. We'll go down to verse 16. And we also, Paul writes to the Thessalonians, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. There it is by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Did you see that in there? 
You, know, you might think that, wow, we live in a world that has never happened before, or our environment is unique, and, and none of the things that we're going through have ever happened before. But the reality is, it's happened over and over and over again through the centuries, and it, to a certain extent is happening in, in some large ways here in Thessalonica. What's at stake? What's at stake for you? What's at stake for me? Uh, I would suggest to you that we are on the verge, if not completely there, of being hindered from speaking. So the, so the issues might be a little bit different. So there might be some things different in the world of Thessalonica in the first century. I think much of it is the same. And so here in this passage, I see the Apostle Paul highlighting two groups, two different worldviews, and two works of the Spirit. Two groups, two worldviews, and two works of the Spirit. First of all, the Apostle Paul highlights two different groups. There's something I kind of want to do a little, a little caveat, a little disclaimer going on here. When we begin to talk about two different groups, two different groups of people, I don't want us to begin to take on the mindset that there are those of us who are on the in and those of us who are on the out to such an extent, this is important, to such an extent that we call them all enemies. Because the Bible doesn't do that. I, I realize there are some descriptions in some place. I'm not saying that there aren't enemies of the gospel. The Bible makes it clear that there are. But when I'm speaking generally of two groups of people at large, I want to be reminded that the Bible also said, for God so loved the world. And I, I don't want to be accused of, you know, rousing a group of people to go out from these walls and look at everyone that you meet that's not inside the four walls of some church as an enemy. Oh no, not at all. However, and today's one of them, however, there comes a time to be distinct. There comes a time to think clearly and deeply about the fact that there are two kinds of people in the world. And I'll say a little bit more about why that is here in just a moment. But the Apostle Paul, first of all, highlights Gentile believers. So he's writing, and we also thank God constantly for this, and he talks about the word there, then... He, he speaks in verse 14, For you, brothers, became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. All right, so now Thessalonica, let's get this squared away. Paul is on his second missionary journey. He's gone to Philippi where he was arrested, thrown in jail, released, left Philippi. Didn't go too far, if you see the maps in, in, in back of your Bible or wherever, to the city of Thessalonica. Uh, where he's housed a little bit. We're not really sure of the relationship between Jesus and Jason. But then enemies moved in there. Trouble came. They left Thessalonica and went down to Berea. We don't have a lot of scripture about Berea, but we have some. They're faithful to search the word of God to see if the things that Paul and the others were preaching was true. So There's a great group of people. But then again, these people left Thessalonica and they followed him down to Berea. And the, the pressure was so great that the disciples like Timothy and Silas and others said to the Apostle Paul, you've got to get out of town. You've got to get out of Berea. And they took him and they put him on a ship 
And he sailed down to Athens and then later went to Corinth where he met up with a couple who, who worked in a trade the same as his. He, he didn't have any money. He had to go to work. And so he was bivocational teaching and working in the city of Corinth when finally Silas and Timothy and the others traveled down to Corinth and told the apostle what's going on in Thessalonica and how they're doing. And as you've heard preached in these last few weeks, they're doing pretty well. We thank God in all remembrance of you. You're holding fast to the truth. Wonderful group of people hanging in there, even in the midst of great persecution. And he says, and he writes back to them here in this chapter and in this verse, I thank my God for you that you're hanging in there and following the example of the churches that were in Judea. Now, we can't go into all of that for sure, but we all know that James was stoned. There's great persecution going on in Judea and in Jerusalem. And the churches are hanging and they're holding together in the face of all this kind of persecution. And so now Paul's writing to the Thessalonians, good job! Way to stay with it! I thank my God for you. For you suffered the same things your own countrymen. Now there it is, the highlight. Why do you say Gentile believers? Because it goes on to say, as they did from the Jews. And so I think that probably the church is a mixed church. It's not all Gentiles, but there are a lot of Gentiles in the uh, church of the Thessalonians. And so he says, I thank my God that you guys are hanging in there being imitators the same way that the Jews are doing in Jerusalem and in Judea. So the first kind of group that he's identifying are Gentile believers. Not the first to do it. Don't get the impression that the Apostle Paul is falling guilty to what I just said a few minutes ago of treating people as enemies. Uh, the Lord Jesus, in his lifetime, said, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the deeds that were done in Tyre and Sidon, that were done in you, they would have repented long ago. Now, that's a lot, and I'm kind of confusing you on that point. It needs this explanation. You see, Chorazin and Bethsaida are cities in Israel. Tyre and Sidon are cities outside of Israel. And the Lord Jesus is saying to those in Israel, predominantly Jews, if the deeds that were done in your cities here where I was traveling around the Sea of Galilee were done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented, but you haven't. Two different groups. Even the Apostle Peter in the book of Acts in chapter 10 first went to Cornelius' house. Cornelius, a Gentile. Peter, obviously a Jew. And after the Holy Spirit fell on that household and they were converted, Peter had to go back to Jerusalem to speak to the other apostles and disciples and say, you're not going to believe this one. Okay, that was Buzz. <laughs> he didn't actually say that. Uh, but he went back to report. And in some sense, he had a little bit of a, a jab in there. Maybe Acts 10.45, and the believers from among the circumcised, so who's that? Jews. The believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter, back to report, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out, and here's what it says, even on the Gentiles. Kind of a little jab there, don't you think? 
Even, even on the Gentiles? Yeah. Even on the Gentiles. They're believers. Of course, we all know Romans 1.16, that great verse. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is what? Power of God unto salvation. To who? To the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Paul writing to the Thessalonians is not the first person in this case, to pick up on two different groups going on here. And the second group, oh, well, we've already read it. The second group are unbelieving Jews. In this particular passage, he's citing those unbelieving Jews. And again, he's not the first one to do that. Blessed are you, Jesus said, when, when people persecute you and revile you and say all manner of evil against you falsely on account of me. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before them. Do you know who persecuted those prophets before them? The Jews persecuted those prophets who were before them. Jesus is saying that there are two groups in this world. Certainly, he says in Acts chapter 2, verse 22 and 23, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, and he goes on to talk about the foreknowledge and pre-planned plan of God. But then he says, you crucified, you killed. Let's be clear. So these are unbelievers. Now certainly the demographics of the first century world go way beyond this kind of simple two-group kind of thing going on. There were slave and free, Roman and Greek, Cretans, and we know they're all liars. Religious people like the Stoics and the Epicureans, and on and on we could go. There are a lot of different kinds of groups. But let it be acknowledged that Paul ministered in an incredibly diverse society, a multiculture. I know we think that we're there. But let's just take one little step back for a moment and say to live in a multicultural society is one thing. To be biblically intentional about reaching all peoples of all ethnic groups, of all nations, is a greater display of the eternal glory of God in the body of Christ. And one person said, you know, it's pretty tough to be a... a uh, a single ethnic group in South Florida. In fact, it's not a very big, amazing statement to say, oh, yeah, well, you know, our church, we've got a, a lot of different ethnic groups. Well, when you live in a culture with a lot of different ethnic groups, that's not such an amazing story. What's more amazing is that you're intentional about reaching people from every nation, tribe, and tongue with the gospel of Jesus Christ. For the glory of God, for sure. Two different groups. But then there are also two different worldviews. Look back again at the text. And I again may be somewhat simplistic, but when I look back at the text and it says to me, and we always thank God, I just stop right there. There's a God. There's a God. Sometimes that's that's pretty much all the sermon you need. When you are facing affliction and challenge like these Thessalonians and like the Judean church is doing, 
Maybe what you need is a mirror to look in there, not you being it, but to say to yourself so that you remember, there's a God, there's a God, there's a God. Because there's a world out there that does not believe that there is a God. And not only is there a God, but there is a God to be thanked. A God to be thanked. That's what Paul is doing here. Thank God. Remind ourselves that in everything to give thanks. We have a God who has, thirdly in this passage, there's a God who has spoken his word. In the beginning, God spoke, and he said, and he said, and he said, and he said, and he said. The word of God is the spoken word of God. Verbal to us to hear. He could have done it differently. He could have painted the gospel on the back of leaves. He could have arranged the clouds in the sky to spell out the gospel, but he didn't. He spoke it. We have a God who speaks the word. We have a word of God that works in the lives of believers. Much more to be said about that. A word of God that works in the lives of believers. And we have a, a, a reward. Our, our worldview says that we have, we have a reward that makes the present sufferings of this world comparatively light. That's a hard one to take sometimes. But 2 Corinthians makes it clear that, that this present suffering can't compare to the weight of glory coming. That Those things that I've said there, that makes up our worldview. What's a worldview? A worldview is simply how do you address, how do you answer, how do you speak about the big questions of life? Where did I come from? Where am I going? Why am I here? The big questions of life formulate your worldview. And we say there's a God. There's a God who has spoken. There's a God who's given us his word. There's a God who makes his word by the power of the Holy Spirit work in your life even in the midst of suffering that can comparatively, if our worldview is complete, says that there's a greater and more joyous thing coming. I, I like the way our confession writes about it. That is the Baptist confession. God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures and things, from the greatest even to the least. And though mankind has rebelled against his goodness and broken his law, he has given his one and only Son to satisfy the penalty of our rebellion by shedding his own blood on the cross and being raised from the dead. And for all those whom the Spirit has granted new birth and a new heart, repents from their sin and follows Jesus, he grants everlasting life of joy in his presence. This is the gospel. This is the worldview. The worldview that God has created every person in this room good. He said, I have created you and it is very good. But similarly, uh, like every person in this room, we have not risen to the level of the glory of God. The Bible says we have fallen short of that glory. And that word short is, is, is honestly, come on. That word short, is that enough? 
We've fallen short most of the time in the American language when we say, well, I came short of that. We're kind of indicating that we're just a little bit below the bar. <laughs> when, we, when the Bible says we've fallen short of the glory of God, there isn't a pit deep enough to describe that. We have just annihilated it. And yet, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's grace comes and he takes all of that sin and shame and takes it upon himself and then satisfies that wrath on that by dying on the cross. So that by faith, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and he's paid that price for you. You may live in the presence of God in all that joy. That's the gospel. That's the worldview. And, and to a certain extent, and following the text to say the same thing that Paul is saying in some regards, there's a warning, folks. We are living in a crazy world, and that world is made up of two kinds of people, believers and unbelievers. And they have two different worldviews. You either believe this and you're going in this direction or you believe this and you're going in that direction. And folks, I'm here to shock you with the fact that there is no compromise. I know we like that. I know that we want to find a way in our politics and our social. Well, this extreme is there, this extreme here, but I like being here. Folks, in these issues that are facing us, many of them, there is no compromise whatsoever. In Paul's two worldviews, with God or without, he says there in the text, these are godless people who oppose all mankind, it says in the text. I had a challenge with that, quite frankly. Look at that again back in verse 15 who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and there it is and opposed all mankind come on they probably didn't oppose all mankind now here's where I'm really trying to draw a line even more starkly Folks, when we erode, when we erode the biblical standards for who I am as a human being made in the image of God, when we erode the biblical standards of who is and what is a family, we are destroying all mankind. It is in the pathway of destruction when we veer away from the biblical standards that God has placed for us. Derek Thompson of the Atlantic magazine, Derek Thompson of the Atlantic magazine writes, and Americans, Americans threw a wrench in the secularization thesis. Now, what does he mean? Well, he's writing about the religious status of people pretty much in the last quarter of the 20th century. And he's going to start out by saying, wait a minute, the Americans threw a wrench in the secularization thesis. That is, that America is becoming more and more secularized, more and more rejecting of God. Deep into the 20th century, he writes, more than 9 in 10 Americans said they believed in God and belonged to an organized religion. 9 in 10. 
But, key word, but in early 1990s, the historical tether between American identity and faith snapped. Religious non-affiliation in the U.S. started to rise and to rise and to rise. He wrote it. I did. By the early 2000s, the share of Americans who said that they didn't associate, they didn't associate with any established religion, also known as nuns, had doubled. And in the 2010s, this grab bag of atheists, agnostics, and spiritual dabblers had tripled in size. The world in front of you is changing, and it is not changing for the better. When we view the chasm that is growing between the Christian worldview and the secular humanistic worldview, it's growing larger. But the reason it's growing larger is one is moving further and further and further and further away from God. And the church needs to wake up about it. Two groups, two worldviews. Finally, Paul glorifies two works of the Spirit. My favorite part of it. So back to verse 13. Back to verse 13 very quickly. And we also thank God constantly for this that when you received the word of God which you heard from us you accepted I like those two different words there going on so I'm just going to give them to you when you received paralambano paralambano just means to get it to receive it okay I got that you receive it but the decomai then you accepted it you embraced it you took it in a few minutes ago we were singing a song and, and in, in that, I can't quote as much as I'd like to, but I noticed it, so I'm bringing it back to your memory. In, insofar as the, in the song, the song said, and in God, in Christ, we are accepted. Let me ask you a question. In God, or in Christ, whichever it said, I don't really remember, that you are accepted. How much do you think you're accepted? A little bit? Close friends, or... You're accepted how? I mean, just warmly, nice to meet you. No, you don't. You think that when you're accepted by God in Christ Jesus, it's like wrapping both arms around, both legs around, like I'm in with God. That's what these people did with the word of God. They not only received it, they accepted it. And, and not as the word of men, but what it really, I love that. I just love it. It's one of my favorite lines in all the Bible. What it really is, the Word of God. Two works of the Spirit. First of all, we have a Word of God. That's an amazing thing. That's an amazing thing that we have a Word of God. That we can carry it with us. That you can have it on your devices now. That you can listen to it. The Word of God. The Word of God is the spoken Word of God. It's verbal and plenary in all that it says. God has spoken to us. God has revealed Himself to us. And He's given us the Word of God. But secondly, what the passage says, the great work of the Spirit is that it works in the lives of believers. Now once again, and I'm going to say this right now, it doesn't say this in this text, but... 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14 is very clear. 
The natural man, that is a person who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, does not receive the things of the Spirit, does not receive the Word of God. Neither can he. He cannot understand it because they are spiritually understood or spiritually discerned. Oh, I don't mean that they can't understand certain facts. Jerusalem's here, Thessalonica's there, different things like that. But it can be of no eternal spiritual value to them whatsoever. It's because it's a work of the Spirit. The Spirit works in believers to minister His Word. Now, how does He do that? I don't know. It reminds me of that old preacher joke. Be prepared to laugh, okay? Because it's bad. But... Um, the teacher was talking to a group of first graders and it's time for the first graders to stand up and tell them, you know, uh, what, what, do you, what do you think is the greatest invention of all time? And uh, one little girl raised her hand, stood up and said, well, I think it was Eli Whitney and the cotton gin because then they could make all that cotton real fast. The teacher said, well, that's very good, very good, that's great. Who else? Oh, little boy raised his hand. Yeah, uh, I think it was... Thomas Edison, because now we can talk on the phones and things like that. Whoa, that's pretty good. Then one little boy in the back of the room there, he raises his hand, one of those students where the teacher goes, oh boy, <laughs> what's coming? I don't know, but okay, all right, Johnny. Well, what have you got? He stood up real proud like that, and he said, I believe the greatest invention of all time is the thermos bottle. She, afraid to ask, but she asked anyway. So well, tell me, why do you think it's the thermos bottle? He said, well... Keeps hot things hot and cold things cold. How does it know? <laughs> I appreciate the laugh. There are some things we don't know. But I can promise you this. That if you read the Word of God, that if you memorize the Word of God, that if you meditate on the word of God with a predisposition for obedience, you will be a changed person. I, I say this illustration not in boasting, just in the grace of God. You know, I, I, work, I work a different vocation now. I have a job to do. I get up each morning and go to work, just like a regular old Joe. But God is so gracious to wake me up before the sun comes up. And I go into my little study and I study the Word of God. And I read the Word of God and if He wants me to write something down, I, I write it down. Every morning, I'm so glad to see the, my, my study office faces east. I watch the sun come up while studying the Word of God. And I pray, oh God, don't give up on me. Don't give up on me and change me and make me more like you every day. How does it happen? I don't know. But I can promise you this, that if you will do it, you will be a changed person. I promise. I'll put the money on the table. I promise. If you read the Word of God, faith comes by hearing it, hearing by the Word of God, by words of application. Romans 10, 17. If you memorize the Word, Awana kids, come on, help me out here. Psalm 119, 11. If you, what? Hide my word in your heart that I'm, his word in my heart, <laughs> that I might not, what? Sin against thee. To, to memorize the word of God. To meditate on it. How blessed is the man who does not 
walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the path of the sinner, nor sit in the seat of the scoffer. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates both day and night. And he'll be like a tree planted firmly by the rivers of waters that whatsoever he does will prosper. Hide God's word in your heart. Meditate on it with a predisposition for obedience. I think for me, someone who probably typifies studying our culture and understanding this need and this warning, if you will, to the church today is Al Mohler. And Al Mohler writes this, for far too long, it's a, it's a little long, come on now, come on, finished. For far too long, evangelical churches have simply assumed that it is our task to give our church members a basic level of biblical knowledge to create opportunities for Christian fellowship and to encourage parents in the Christian nurture of their children. But what we have failed to understand is that Christians in the 21st century are being thrown into a world in which just a little bit of Bible knowledge is simply not going to be enough. Simply having positive fellowship and nurturing experiences in the church and in the Christian family will not be enough. The church must prepare. That's what I'm talking about today. The church must prepare people to be able to think Christianly in a world where the intellectual rules have fundamentally changed. They are going to have to learn to be faithful in the terms of everyday decision making, in terms of profound moral questioning, and in terms of political, economic, and cultural issues. It is not that the church needs to be constantly talking about the culture. Rather, it is with the culture challenge all around us, we need to be talking more and more about the Bible and coming to a deeper understanding of the Scriptures. The church must equip its members to be deeply biblical so that the theological mode of thinking is something that comes naturally to believers. Such Christians will be saturated with biblical truth, sustained by the life of the congregation and encouraged into faithfulness by the communion of the saints. We got to get together and we got to encourage one another in the reading and the memorizing and meditating upon the word of God. I'm mindful of the Lord Jesus and speaking to his disciples. He said, you know what? Don't worry about what to say when they come to persecute you. Because the Spirit of God will give you the words to speak at that point. The Spirit of God will lead you and direct you, he said in another place, in all truth. But if it's not in there, you won't have it. Oh, church. We're of one group. We have a worldview that says King Jesus is indeed king. And he has granted to us the good news of the gospel. And we have the word of God. And we have the spirit of God that makes it active in our lives. What are you doing with it? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you love us and you care for us. And now I pray that we would prepare, that we would hear the alarm, that we would hear the trumpet, and that we would resolve 
to be in your word on a daily basis, to memorize it, to meditate on it. How in the world did the Thessalonians hear the word? Somebody spoke it to them. How did they get it? How will people in our world get it? If we do not speak it, O oh God, grant us forgiveness as we confessed before you and pray that you would saturate our lives with your word. In Jesus' name.